Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Hey, young adventurers. On today's podcast, I interview Skip Rizzo. Skip Rizzo is the Director of Medical Virtual Reality at the Institute of Creative Technologies at USC. Um, he's an old friend of mine that I actually met at the Psychological Behavioral Change Conference at Stanford. He's a great human. He works on a ton of amazing VR applications around clinical research, psychological, cognitive, motor functions, uh, how to measure it, and basically how to help heroes um, before and after traumatic instances. It's been kind of his lifelong focus and passion to really heal trauma using this immersive technology known as virtual reality. And he's been doing it since like 1995, I believe, is when he got started in the space. And, and since then, he, he just kind of leveled up in the air became, to where he became one of the big thought leaders in the space of you know, VR uh, for good. And um, I was very, uh, very much enjoyed our, our, our ride-winding conversations and our topics, uh, talking about what he's done with USC, what me and him have done, and we're working together on in projects, and you know what is this all about in terms of you know being the heroes of our own story. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome the great and the powerful Skip Rizzo. Hey Skip, what's up, buddy? How you doing, man? All right, uh, good to see you. <laughs> good to see you too, dude. I was uh, I was enjoying your previous backdrop you just had on. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the flames of hell. <laughs> yeah. uh, some people feel that's kind of the the 2020 theme we've got going down. Um, but it's uh it's actually really good to have you on the podcast, man. Um, uh, really excited to to chat and connect and 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 wrap with you about all the things that you've done. Um, you, uh, uh, we first got connected years ago uh, when we met at the Stanford Behavioral Change Conference. Uh, we were sitting in the back, just sipping on coffee, realizing it's way too early for a developer to be up um, <laughs> to talk about some sort of like process. And I remember you going, you're like, yeah, I, I threw a VR conference at my, my place over at US, USC and we were talking about it. I was like, I was like oh, I threw a VR conference over at UCI. And I was like, oh, what are you up to? And then um, just really connected with all the things that, like all the things that you're working on and the things that you've done throughout your years of taking VR, this immersive technology and applying it for good, for behavioral change and positive change and really having a positive impact, I think has been a beautiful mission. And one of the things I've absolutely resonated with your journey. Um, and so I, I, I would love to like kind of, um, first like dive into kind of like how you kind of came to be um, in the areas of like um, using VR for, um, how would you call it, behavioral change and positive impact or? Yeah, yeah, that would be a good uh, description. Uh, you know, I, I use the catch basin, basin term uh, clinical VR uh, because it's uh, the application of VR for you know, clinically oriented purposes, whether it's mental health, physical rehab, uh, training, training of, um, of medical doctors, psychologists, social workers, uh, a whole variety of ways that uh, you can develop applications that fit under this clinical category as opposed to games or uh, experimental research, although the research does naturally flow into uh, the clinical work. Yeah. Well, yeah, because there's the difference between that um, research and applied research. You know, can you, you, you can do a thing, but then can you do a thing that has some sort of impact, which it sounds like the areas primarily is around both a knowledge transfer and emotion transfer, you know, habits, psyches, things like that, where you're, you're really, you're leaving an impression on the person where they, where they ultimately have some sort of impact or um, micro transformation, if you would. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that's uh, the nature of uh, VR and AR, where they're emotionally evocative technologies. Uh, you know, if done properly, create experiences that evoke emotions that, uh, in a clinical context, may uh, be risk for the mill or be really helpful uh, for helping a person to see through their problems or to 
develop new coping strategies and so forth. But, you know, it, it is about bringing up emotions that oftentimes are abstract or a person might not naturally be able to express those things clearly, but put them in a context uh, that is relevant. And sometimes that's where the magic happens. Yeah, that's seeing the magic of putting them in the situation and then watching it unfold because we have a thing where we're like, we think we know how other people are, but we don't really 100% know it until you really can see them live it and experience it. And one of the best places to observe that is in a very controlled VR environment. And it's not until you really recreate the situation and put the person through it, do you really see those aha moments, you know, because there's like, you know, the what we don't know, what we don't know bit, which is like where all the magic lies. Um, one of the ways that you did that, I thought was really emotionally, because I think last time I was talking, I said provocative, but evocative is, um, is the term, but uh, that I went through that was a really emotional invoker was your, your brave mind experience, which um, I was able to put my father through, who was a veteran um, over at the uh, Costa Mesa Fairgrounds. would love to learn a little bit about that experience and kind of the origins of that as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, you know, the Brave Mind Project was um, the use of virtual reality for creating simulations of traumatic experiences, particularly uh, with veterans for combat experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, and essentially delivering what's considered to be an evidence-based approach to treatment of PTSD, um, what we call prolonged exposure, a trauma-focused exposure uh, process. And, you know, I don't want to go too far out in the weeds, but let me say this. Whenever I describe this to people, when, that, when I watch their face as I first describe it, I see them start to you know, wrinkle up their forehead and squinch their eyes. And they're thinking, why the hell would you do this to somebody? <laughs> and, you know, the reality is that based on the science, and this is what I typically say, we do it because the science shows us that it's one of the most effective approaches for treating PTSD, and that is to help a patient to go back and confront and reprocess difficult emotional memories, but in a safe place. And in order to do that, you have to pull those memories, you have to pull out those emotions. You're essentially picking at a scab, um, and the traditional method has relied exclusively on imagination. So having a person close their eyes and asking them to narrate uh, that bad thing that happened to them in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, and to do it over and over and to have the clinician probe for a little bit more detail, try to help them to um, bring the emotion into it. Sometimes somebody will say, oh, well, there was a time I was driving down a road towards Fallujah and I saw a guy with a, a cell phone and all of a sudden the vehicle blew up and uh, my best friend died. And that's the end of the story. Well, that's a very cognitive, sanitized, emotionally sanitized story. Yeah. So the job of the clinician is to, to get the patient to really dig into that. And so they might say, hey, well, let's take it back 10 minutes. Tell me a little bit about your friend. Uh, what were you guys talking about? Uh, and, and to try to get at that stuff. And I know it sounds like torture, but in reality, when you, when you bring up and process these emotions in a safe place, as opposed to avoiding them, you see these emotions start to become more manageable. Uh, the problem that people have is that they try to avoid thinking about the bad thing that happened to them or going to places that remind them. And, when you avoid anything that um, makes you feel uncomfortable or anxious or fearful, uh, you get a temporary sense of relief. And that relief ends up reinforcing continued avoidance. And so people with PTS, you know, typically over time try to sh shield themselves, try to build a wall around their emotionality um, and never get to the point of being able to talk about the things that were difficult for them and to reprocess them in a way that makes it so they're not living in constant threat, even though they're in a safe civilian environment. Uh, 
that that's really the the biggest issue um, here. Uh, you know, we, so what we do is we put people in VR yeah. simulations that mimic what they went through. It'll never be an exact replica, but we can put them in the Humvee. We can have them driving. We can manipulate the time of day. We can have it be a city environment or um, a remote, you know, mountain outpost or an Afghan village in a, you know, in a distant area. Um, and we can control everything that goes on in that simulation and pace it around the person telling their story. And what ends up happening is when you're in that VR headset and all of a sudden you're back in that place, even though it's not the same place or exactly the same place, there's enough of those cues to activate the brain. And, you know, you, there's no doubt it's hard medicine for a hard problem. People do feel uncomfortable, but as they talk through it, and you've got a supportive clinician and it's a safe place eventually the i don't I'd like to say the person but i like but i really think the brain realizes that those threats no longer exist in yeah. their current life now that's not to say those memories are not going to be painful yeah. and uh, we're not in the business of erasing memory we're just trying to help people react <laughs> to um, their memories or their past experience in a way that's not going to put a big harness on them in their everyday mm -hmm. environment where those threats no longer exist. Like, you know, somebody driving down the 405 and there's a pile of trash by the side of the road, all of a sudden that triggers a memory of where an IED was hidden by the side of the road on the way to Fallujah. They veer off the road or they, they don't want to drive anymore. They're hypervigilant or agitated. Um, that that's an that's an uncontrolled trigger stimulus. That's just things jumping out at the real uh, in the real world and creating an uncomfortable situation. But if you do that stuff gradually at a pace the person can handle in a VR environment in a safe place, eventually those those cues don't have the same potency to make you jump out of your skin or or feel horrible. So that's part of the process. That's beautiful. I mean, you, I mean, there's a whole, uh, a whole mountain of clinical data that stuff that you went through that was so powerful in what you're talking about. It's just, I mean, it's so true. It's just like all things that uh, just from I've seen and just talking to people and all this on this whole process of personal growth, transformation, all that stuff is that we all go through life and we get our whole life is made by these stories and these stories shape our beings and that's everything that we do. And then sometimes you, you create a story as a stopgap to just something you don't want to deal with. Like, I'm too busy right now to deal with that problem, right? Whatever that thing. But when you do that, it's always about speeding past the thing and never stopping and looking it down the eyes, taking it slow, moving through the experience, really getting to know that. And part of that comes to the rejection of, by rejecting that memory, you're rejecting a piece of yourself, right? You're rejecting the whole situation. Exactly. And, and by denying that to you, it, it eats up memory in your brain. If you're, if you're saying, oh, I have a hundred, I have a hundred percent of my, of my RAM available. Well, that you, you, you're like, I ain't got time for that. That's going to take up two, three, four, five percent. And you got like 30 stories like that. And then also now it takes up everything. So if anybody hits a little button, you go off the edges and it's not until you can really grab those stories and rewrite those stories in a way that empowers you to actually utilize it. And part of that sitting, when you talk about like facing it, but man, it's that whole, like the cave you fear the most lies the treasure you seek bit. It's just, that is where all the magic lies, but nobody wants to go there. It's like, oh, hey, how'd you get in shape? <laughs> Diet and exercise? Yeah, I don't, mm, I don't really wanna, you know, it's like, well, how'd you get past your mental wellness? Well, I faced all my demons and I rewrote the stories and I sat through the pain and I did the work and I worked with professionals and they guided me through a process. And I really relived it a thousand times until I beat the shit out of it and I dominated my mind. Nah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's so, that's so beautiful, but that you offer that because that's such a difficult, for someone to try to do that on their own, I mean, it's just, they're just trying to keep, keep the the shit from sinking by duct taping it down you know that's like, it that's it exactly <laughs> yeah get out of here you know dub it and so you know what what really led you down this path because this is a beautiful noble like you know uh thing and i, and I totally resonate with all the things you do it's like what really got you inspired to start doing this type of stuff did you have an original incident or is like what uh, what's going down 
Well, there, there's a couple of points. As far as the PTSD work goes, um, I had done a clinical internship back in 1985 at the Long Beach VA. And I worked with a lot of Vietnam era veterans. And at that time, this whole prolonged exposure approach was just getting off the ground. Uh, people were reporting case studies with positive uh, outcomes, but it wasn't, it wasn't as uh, evidence-based as it is today. Um, so I spent a lot of time with Vietnam veterans, just listening to them um, and really just sort of intuitively trying to help them to to tell their story, but in a way that um, helped them find meaning in their experience. And it's very hard because some of the things that these folks went through, you know, it's a real stretch to say there's personal, there's meaning. The meaning was in the suffering and the survival, but, you know, it's hard to make sense of the loss of, of buddies and the, the wrong things that happened or the things that people participated in that they wish they hadn't, you know? I mean, there's a big element in PTSD of, um, um, you know, more, what they call moral injury, where you're put into a context and you have to react in a survival mode. And sometimes you may do something that uh, you regret or that violates your code. You know, do you shoot that kid with a, a, a bomb belt on them running towards your squad? Um, well, you know, if the kid gets there and ignites the bomb, then, you know, your whole team is up in flames. If you shoot the kid, you got to live with shooting the kid. And so how do you get past that? I mean, so anyway, I would hear yeah. a lot of these stories and hear a lot of this, this pain. And, and, you know, I did my best, but I, I felt like, you know, there was more that could be done. Well, anyway, I, my career took a turn and I ended up working more in the area of brain injury rehab. And, it, and I worked on a coast to make Mesa, the coastline traumatic brain injury program. And in there, it was a different kind of trauma. It was a physical trauma of really losing yourself, you know, having a car accident and, and having a massive frontal lobe injury that changed your personality or impaired your skills or injuries that created physical problems, you know, coordination, movement, and everything. And, you know, that work was very meaningful and inspiring because you could see gains. You could see if you focused on people doing cognitive and physical rehab, and if they stuck with it, uh, and, and they felt like they could recover themselves, uh, that you, you, you would see improvements, and you would see that their life could carry on maybe differently than before. For, um, but um, is, you know, is that because inside the brain imaging you could see the actual progress? So you had a visual indicator that things were changing. Uh, you know what we had, um, rather than having people just check off a box as to you know rating their emotion, we could actually test cognitive function or test people over time. Um, on functional tasks and the improvements. We actually started up a, um, a softball team uh, at the center and played in a, in a non-disabled men's league. And, they, you know, baseball is actually, softball is really a cognitively interesting activity in a fun context, you know. And I remember one guy uh, that uh, he came, he just came into the center and I told him about our softball team. And he goes, oh, I used to play softball before my injury. I go, oh, come on out. And this guy, this guy, horrible story. He, his partner on a Brinks armored car thing sold him out and sold him out to some robbers. And the guy got shot in the head, but he survived it and everything. Well, anyway, he goes out and if he comes out the next day, he's got his glove, you know, and you can tell that he's got his shirt. You could tell this was a big thing for him beforehand. Yeah. You know, and, and it, there's a cognitive element with baseball. You've got to pre-plan. you got to think if the ball comes to me, where I'm going to throw it, who's where, you know, all that. But anyway, so he comes out and, I, and he goes, where do you want me to go? I go, oh, go out to right field, you know, where you put new guys for the first time. And he goes out there and somebody hits a fly ball to him. He puts his glove up. And it was the worst thing that could happen, you know, he had his hand up. And the ball just hits him right now. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, what's the worst thing you can do in a brain injury program? Uh, you know? oh, well, man. anyway, he was all right. 
Yeah. And and he stuck to it. And the, the, the brotherhood of the team and the playing of the game and that embodied activity. Well, anyway, a long story short, a couple months down the road, we're, you know, we're playing in this men's league, getting our butts kicked. Uh, we actually won one game in a real men's uh, league. Uh, but anyway, awesome. um, yeah, it was good. Because really, there were some, some folks out there that were still physically pretty able that carried the team. Yeah, um, <laughs> some of the yeah, but there were a couple that, you know, they had walkers and I'd have mm-hmm. to stand up behind them when they were at the plate. And the other teams we played were really, really cool about it. You know, they pitched nice. the kid. You know, so I'm behind this kid. He's flailing around with a bat, almost hitting me in the head. But anyway, back to this guy. So in the middle of this game, all of a sudden, a fly ball goes to him. And I'm watching and I'm thinking, oh, crap, you know. And I see him put his glove up. And then at the last second, he moved his glove like six inches to the left and caught that ball. Oh. And it showed me that this embodied activity and maybe the support, the brotherhoods, you know, the team, we ended up having a co-ed team after that. So, you know, but it was guys at that point that fostered a change in his brain yeah. function. He was able to, to retune his perceptual awareness of things, his eye-hand coordination, and bang, he caught that ball, and it was like, oh, my God, that's great. But that showed me that this embodied activity might have more power than the traditional methods that we're using in, in brain injury rehab. A lot of workbook exercises, you know, things out of special ed and all that. So at the same time, I learned about virtual reality. And I also started bringing video games into the clinic, uh, like SimCity, a good executive function type training game. Um, and once I started learning about what VR was, what it was, what the vision was, the possibility of it, it was 93. Um, it was like, okay, this is what we're gonna do with brain injury. We're gonna build these simulated contexts where people can practice skills, but in a safe way, and where we can systematically control the stimulus presentation, give them good feedback, maybe gamify some of it, um, and, and promote motivation, because some of these, these rehab tasks are boring as hell, you know, and frustrating, oh, God. Um, and I, you know, I decided at that point, uh, I'd go back to academia, and took a postdoc at USC. And that's what's the start of the lab in 19. I got there in 95 and 96, we had a lab going. I, I convinced uh, some computer scientists in the computer science department to donate some time with their programmers and um, some equipment. And we we're off to the races. And that's how I got started in the VR stuff in the mid nineties, not getting back to the PTSD until 2003. I was yeah. focused on the brain injury work. So that's a long, long story, but basically a couple of things, you know, you have personal events in your life um, that, you know, it's like the old saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell your plans. Uh, you, you can't plan it. It just, these things happen to you. And if, you know, if you follow up on a passion or an idea and, you know, you get lucky too, you know, uh, get uh, eliminate that part maybe you create your own luck but uh, th- those were two pivotal events my experience with vietnam era veterans and then my experience in brain injury rehab that drove me into thinking vr would be um the next best thing uh you know to pursue that's that's super cool i actually never knew the uh all the times we've been friends i've actually actually never knew the origins of it and that once you see the dots, as I say, looking backwards, it all kind of lines up. But it, it is a really cool series of events where you first went to this uh, veteran ward, uh, Vietnam veteran ward, where you kind of felt powerless to make change, and you saw that there was pain, and so you saw there was a purpose, but there's nothing that you could take action on. Right. And then you and then you went to this traumatic brain ward, where you um, where you could actually uh, actually look at the brain, diagnose it, and you had a measurement tool where you can now start playing the game, the game of progress. And then what was really cool is that you you I love the fact that you brought games into it. That you're like, you know what, education without entertainment sucks. 
It is forced labor. It is enslaving the mind and the spirit and the heart. I don't want to get rid of that. So the fact that you brought uh, so many things, you brought games to, to, to really this rehab. And also, you, you just by passively playing a game, there's a weird psychological health thing of, of, of feeling needed, being part of a tribe, being accepted, being a contributing member of that group, actively playing an embodied sport, whether you're all running through the forest trying to hunt down a giant elk, throwing spears at it, or you're throwing balls around having a great time because you're all collaborative and you feel that you need it. And you understand that you need to take this action to help out because it's for you and it's for the team. And then that kind of lets go of all the you know those stories that are eating up x part of your brain and so and then you could see that measurement cognitive change thing so it seemed like that was that perfect storm um of it but it really took your own spirit the spirit of i want this to be fun i want to have a good time and just the the sheer balls you have to go and say i'm going to convince this this uh, computer science group to do this i'm going to bring these guys over here is that this guy is going to get knocked in the noggin with a brain injury and i'm going to keep <laughs> going you're like you're like yeah it'll be fine we'll just dust you off a bit it's not that yep. big of a deal. You'll be fine. You got a hard head. No worries. Just a, just a flesh wound. Yeah. <laughs> just a flesh wound. Um, but, you know, you put your own spirit into it in your personal touch. And so, I mean, I think this is super cool. That puts you on this really unique path, which is trailblazing the way for a lot of these things that we know to be true of using VR technology to, 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 to help people see themselves better. And, and be able to kind of help them rewrite their own story. So um, I, I think this is, this is incredible um, of an activity and like kind of like what brought you to here. Do you have like, is along this path, I mean, do you have like an ultimate, what I would call the holy grail, or do you have something like along this thing that like what you ultimately want to be able to do with this technology or ultimately like if, if, if you, uh, to, to see this technology be used as like like the, the ultimate tool to kind of what you want to do with this? Oh, uh, there are so many, so many directions where I think you can make a difference for mm -hmm. mental health, wellness, uh, and for just helping humans to cope with uh, adversity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I did a bit of work uh, with the military on pre-deployment resilience training where, uh, you know, people, uh, service members before they they be deployed, they could go through uh, this kind of an episodic um, experience where it was like, it, think of it this way: um, instead of watching, you know, Band of Brothers on TV, sitting on your butt watching, you know, watching the story, passively observing it. Instead, imagine you have a VR experience where you're in the Band of Brothers episode, and you get to know the characters. And you go on different missions. And the way we built it was that each mission, at the end of it, there would be something bad that would happen. And the bad part was modeled after the stories we had heard from patients in therapy going through their PTS, you know, seeing the kid die, um, you know, seeing a, a, a woman being physically abused by a bunch of men. Um, one of your squad members gets shot. Uh, somebody laying in a road, but you can't go there to help them uh, because they may be rigged with an explosive and a battle breaks out within the Humvee of all the guys in the squad that want to go and help this guy laying out in the middle of the road, you know. Um, all these moral, ethical, and physical threatening dilemmas that we would put people through, like an emotional obstacle course. But at the end of each of those episodes, um, virtual human mentor would walk out and say, okay, come on in here and you'd be by the side of the road after your Humvee got blown up with an IED. And he'd walk into a ramshackle hut and it was a briefing room and up on the briefing room, the model of the brain spinning around and, uh, you know, the mentor would say, you know, you're probably uh, questioning uh, your courage because you're anxious right now after getting blown up. Well, I'm here to tell you that's a normal response to a physically threatening situation. And then a little tutorial from the brain showing how the brain is activated during stress, you know, some psychoeducation on that. And, um, and then um, the mentor would go on and, and instruct uh, the user on, you know, in cases of acute stress situations, 
One way to manage it is with a breathing exercise, a tactical breathing exercise, very simple to do. And up on the screen, pops these lungs that are expanding and contracting. <clears throat> and it would guide the user through this very simple breathing tactic that really does have a positive effect on well-being and, and calming and lowering blood pressure, reducing heart rate, stuff like that. But you did it in a fun way. Well, anyway, we built out all these different things, all these dilemmas and all these coping strategies. <clears throat> I think, you know, that, and that turned out to be quite a good project. But what I want to do with it is to build out things that better prepare people for the challenges in everyday life. Um, whether it's a child with a disability, <clears throat> whether it's a police officer before they go on the force and they're in training, uh, prepare them for the kinds of challenges that they're going to face and how to cope with those things and maybe promote better mental health in the police force. Uh, I personally, I believe that a lot of the, uh, the bad shootings and other egregious actions are a combination of um, a couple of symptoms of PTSD, not enough to get you diagnosed, but um, that that the trauma that that the stressors that police officers are focused are subjected to lead to emotional numbing. And if there's a racial bias element into it, it's emotional numbing, particularly towards a different racial group. Um, emotional numbing is part of response to stress. You're building a a callous, a psychological callous around you. And so you don't feel about those people or those events in the same way after chronic exposure to stress. And the other one is hypervigilance, you know, and we see that with, with veterans because, you know, honestly, hyper being hyper aroused or hypervigilant, that might have kept you alive in the battlefield. But it's not so good when you're in a restaurant and some old buddy comes up behind you, puts their arm on your shoulder, and you jump out of your skin, turn around ready to start swinging or whatever. And the combination of that emotional numbing and that hypervigilance is toxic combination for pulling a trigger or putting a knee on someone's throat or whatever. And so can we prevent those things in these high stress occupations by putting people through these immersive narratives where they go through it and they learn the different ways to cope with it and the different strategies for diffusing or de-escalating a situation rather than aggravating it. And this is not a slight on, on police. Um, this is a slight on the training and the recognition of the stressors that police go through, um, that we need to surveil this better and deliver these kinds. Of, so that would be my mission would be, you know, whether it's kids that are picked on and bullied or whether it's kids that have grown up with adverse childhood experiences or uh, victims of sexual trauma or police, firefighters, first responders, COVID, healthcare professionals and the front lines. We're going to see a second wave coming out of that uh, in terms of mental health challenges in these folks. How do you prepare people for that? How do you keep them healthy while they're doing that job and, and be able to spot them when they're not so healthy and they may screw up big time on that job because of something that a good that, that having good coping skills would have prevented that's man oh man <clears throat> said a lot of awesome stuff in there um <laughs> again you give me all this information okay okay where what piece do i want to unpack from the situation no this is one, it's a beautiful mission. And it, to me, what it sounds like is almost like, you know, you, you're almost, you're, you're training people how to be more heroic in these situations. Heroic situations only come about when there's something that went disastrously wrong. And then we have an issue when we don't view ourselves as heroes. And especially when a split decision happens and friendly fire or something terribly goes wrong, we have to kill a child. You now view yourself as someone that you don't like. And in that situation, because you have to respond to, or you're just trying, you're, you're in survival mode where everyone becomes a threat. And that, that perceived world of, is the people in my world perceived as friendly or as threatening? And that situation, because no one really does give us this guidebook for life, which it sounds like you did, which I thought was brilliant, taking the band of brothers kind of concept and putting that camaraderie and then saying, shit's going to go bad. And here's what happened. And giving them the education, not saying you shouldn't feel bad. Because the issue right. was, 
when we back in the day, we didn't know with World War One, World War Two, the whole psychological uh, train. By the way, feel free to check me because I am not a scientist like you are. And so, but from what from my understanding is. World War One, World War Two. We really didn't know how to process the emotions. We went through and started doing massive, massive battles, huge wartime situations, and no one knew how to deal with the psychological effects that that would have on the human psyche, which was this hypervigilance and this emotional numbing, which was a survival mechanism for us in great wartime situations. And there was no way to actually strategically process it in a healthy, holistic way. So what did we do? We do what humans do. We we numb. We um, we uh, sedate. We, we deflect, we run away, and then we basically overreact to other situations where you hear something crumple or someone grabs your shoulder and these things, and you have this hyperlistic response, which basically, if, if, if you get put in these stressful situations and, you, and you're not trained for it, you're gonna respond poorly, and then you're gonna have to deal with this, this, this self. And so what I love about it is like, you're, you're doing two things on both these sides of situations. Heroic people can only come from extraordinary situations where it, things can go horribly wrong, right? That's really what people, you know, whether to them or other people. And you're dealing with both the post and the pre to that situation. You know, the post being all the traumatic incidents with like brave mind and, and saying, look, what terrible, let's, let's, let's play that back and go through it. And then you're saying, let's, let's get ahead of that ball and saying, okay, we know the terrible situations that are going to cause this. So we're going to step you into this and we're going to prep you as heroes that are going to go into the front lines of battle, you know, for us, for your country, or even for a school bully situation or in the hospital situation and prep you up the best we can. And then you're going to go through it and other things will happen and we'll capture that too. And we'll make another application for you to go through to really help them. But I think that's a beautiful thing because that's, uh, you need a way to heal these heroes, both pre and post these situations. You know? No, we, we really, uh, uh, the mantra in the lab on this was, let's put ourselves out of a job on the back end treating PTSD by doing a better job on the front end, preparing people for these kinds of inevitable challenges that they're going to face. I mean, think about a 19-year-old that, that signs up for the military and, you know, up to that point, the, the biggest trauma was Mary Sue breaking up with them before the senior prom, you know, uh, and now they're going to war. You know, the frontal lobes still haven't fully evolved at, at that age. You know, that's still growing uh, into the 20s. And those are essential for, for helping you modulate emotion and learn to cope and everything. And you're putting these kids into battle. You've got to prepare them for what they're going to face. And, and the military kind of got it around 2010. They stood up a program called um, Comprehensive Soldier Fitness. And this general at the time, General Casey, wrote an article, believe it or not, in American Psychologist Journal, and it, and it was, one of the great lines was, uh, we now have to elevate psychological fitness in the military to the same level we've traditionally addressed physical fitness. And it was finally somebody saying, you know, war is a friggin' nightmare, uh, you know, and you, you've got to pay attention to preparing people for, you know, being resilient to the things we ask them to experience or the job we ask them to do and, and the, you know and so my my thing from doing a lot of that work in, in, in the combat context was you know i you know this is you know I, I i'm very satisfied and happy with how that's gone but um i want to translate all of that stuff to addressing the significant amount of trauma that exists for everybody in everyday life you know whether in the military or civilian whatever Plenty of trauma in the world, and, <laughs> and we we've got to be able to prepare people for for dealing with it effectively. And and you know the biggest thing right now is this whole adverse childhood events uh, domain. There's I think so many of the problems in the world now come from kids that have had these very objectively definable events happen. You know whether it's physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, loss of a parent, seeing a parent die. Um, you know, there's a whole laundry list of these things. And in fact, you know, insurance companies have put together actuarial tables that can predict someone's healthcare consumption later in life based on the number of these adverse events that they've had as a child. And if you look at the people that um, are, you know, most likely to have a criminal history or substance abuse, whatever, you see a lot of those uh, ACEs, those adverse childhood event boxes being checked off. So that's where we're failing. What can we do to help 
children as they grow and move forward to learn how to cope with what they went through so they don't just spiral into a negative self-image, blame themselves for what happened or think that's a good role model or whatever. <clears throat> and I think that there are, are methods in VR that uh, may help us to do that. Dude, that's, that's beautiful. And I completely agree with you. I mean, one of the ways that, you know, how do you, you know, how do you heal the, the planet? You heal the people. How do, you, how do you heal the people? You heal the trauma. How do you heal the trauma? You can do it. The younger, the better, right? The earlier you heal the wounded child before it becomes wounded or quickly thereafter. Um, and, and, and here's the thing, if you, if, if all of a sudden, um, you know, it, it, all the world's uh, trauma gets healed um, and you become out of a job, I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to high five you for that one. I just, I don't think that's a, if, 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 if that's the, the end game is to, to get rid of trauma, I mean, everybody experiences trauma and to different degrees and things like that, but it still has a deep impact because it's very personal to you. It could, it could be a, you know, a spider jumped in your lap. It could be anything. And just, but we get these emotional scars and that, and that whole, because you notice that the trauma creates this, this negative energy that creates an outlet of pain or destructivity. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to take that and you're going to roll it into a place. Either you're going to defer it by, you know, you're in pain. So you put someone else in pain or you put yourself in pain or you sedate. It's just, it's very, it's a, it's a very, there's a lot of easy outlets to try to deal with that, that trauma versus the face your demons, look them down, process them, capture them, rewrite the whole stories and, and work with people to heal it. That's a very, it's a noble and difficult path. But, um, well, well, Dylan, I mean, yeah. maybe you should talk for a second about you know the work we're about to collaborate on with the uh, Wonderseed Foundation because mm -hmm. it's really trying to focus on this problem, but within the 16 to 24 year old population, uh, try to help disadvantaged youth, you know, become advantaged or whatever. I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, let's talk about it. So, uh, known Skip for years, super awesome dude, and he um, and uh, we've always looked for opportunities to collaborate. And the one we're working on right now is with Wonderseed, and uh, awesome, awesome um, nonprofit foundation focused on social emotional learning for uh, children and disadvantaged youths and, and situations. And you know, one of the projects that we're rolling out is uh, is you know helping. Uh, uh, young adults in the hospitality industry handle difficult conversations, right? And so we're, we're using virtuality, embodied cognition, um, and, you know, thankfully Skip has uh, agreed to work with us as we, as we build this whole thing out. Um, but really gives, yeah, it's, it's an incredible opportunity. And, uh, you know, my background being in the, in the hospitality industry for a number of years before I jumped into this with the whole, food truck and all these other things and seeing that like you know people can progress and level up and that hospitality is an entry foot into a place and you can either level up in management and go that direction or you can take those people skills because really hospitality is the art and science of being hospitable to other people and have them feel welcome and loved and if you're in torment uh whether for yourself or other people it is very difficult to be hospitable and it is a real litmus test or testing grounds to see, can you be of service to people and can they enjoy your company in whatever facet, whether restaurant, hotels, or, or whatever the thing might be. And, and you get the most jaded when you're of service constantly. And so you really, it, um, it gives you a really good uh, area to test with. And so uh, having that bit of a background, I'm really excited to be working with you on this project. I know that we're gonna be looking to do a write-up by the end of the year for this thing. Um, um, but all the pieces are there and it makes a lot of sense. It's, um, it's a beautiful thing to do. So anytime you can be of service to help them, you know, uh, love themselves and love other people. I think it's such a noble and awesome cause. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing this one and, and, and some of these other projects. There's some other ones I have in the background that I'm working on. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about, uh, after this offline, leave, leave the mystery there, but it's, um, I just think all this stuff is beautiful work, man. Cause we have this really, one of my beliefs is that one of human superpowers is ability to collaborate with other humans using technology through space and time, right? So that's the thing that allowed us to kick so much butt is our ability to collaborate. We first did it with mental virtual reality, right? You know, and we had that with cultures and systems and things like that. And now we can do it with actual virtual reality, but this is like our superpowers ability to collaborate like this quicker, better, faster than the other 
um, people, species, and whatnot. And I think we're ultimately seeking to try to be all connected together, but there's a certain balance between like autonomy, like, like our own individuality and being a part of the collective whole, right? There's this balance that we're, we're constantly at odds with. You want to be completely autonomous, but you also want to be accepted by the tribe. And so we had this hard thing where it's very difficult for us to communicate and helping people have that communication where they can find that voice within and, and, and project it outward and be accepted in a loving and connected way is ultimately, I think, the name of the game. And it's something that we're all seeking to do until Elon Musk creates that chip that goes in your brain and we can all ex instantly communicate our thoughts, emotions, and desires to each other. We still have to work on this complicated, messy technology we call language and, uh, and body movement that's gonna take a little bit of effort. So that's my- You know, it, it, it's funny you bring that up because it reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you were in Star Trek Next Generation fan, but uh, when, when that TV show came out, uh, one of the villain species were the Borg. And the, yeah. The Borg were connected. They had the chip and, you know, everything. They were, you know, and they were one unified whole. And they were portrayed as the evil, you know, empire, so to speak. You know, maybe it was a metaphor for communism or whatever. You know, who knows what the rationale was. But the whole thing was that intensive drive if you if you pull the borg out of the collective they would feel absent and empty and raw and in some sense we have in the last 15 20 years with technology kind of aspired to become more oh. borg like you know if we don't have our phone and we can't uh, text somebody or whatever the connectivity issue is um you know all of a sudden we're, we're starting to get the shakes and everything so you know, I think we've got to keep, like you say, that balance. We've got to be able to to harness technology to, you know, help foster a connectedness with others, but also support some level of autonomy and, you know, help people to become more whole on their own so that if they lose their cell phone, uh, they're not going to have a, an anxiety attack. They're just going to notice the trees a little bit more in their backyard <laughs> or wherever they are, or whatever it is. There's, a, you know, um, this, this is, this is going to be a, you know, certainly a big issue. I mean, maybe we're going through a societal transformation where we are going to become more Borg-like in the next 20 years, and that's just going to be the norm. But uh, I don't know. I think humans have this desire, this innate individualism, thing uh maybe it's just driven by some darwinian uh approach to you know uh, self-preservation mm -hmm. and it's a byproduct of that or whatever but you know technology is going to no matter what your view is on that if we can harness technology for good maybe we can make up for some of the ills uh i remember jaron lanier uh, at a conference one time he was doing a keynote, this is like in the mid 90s, and he he was really, he's a little soured on some of the internet stuff over the last few years, but he was really optimistic at that time. And he said that he thought the information age would be the positive payback for the sins of the industrial age, that using all the power of information technology, we would be able to, you know, maybe he was thinking address pollution or global warming or, whatever the context was, um, improve healthcare, but to, to address all the things that, you know, we had neglected or the, or the, the bad symptoms of an industrialized society. Now I think he's taken a little bit of a different turn, but I still hold to that vision. I still hold to the vision that we can leverage this kind of information and communication technology in ways that can elevate humanity. I'm not, not going to give up trying, you know, I'll croak before uh, I see it, but at least I'll croak doing something I love. Uh, it's, it's all about all of us pushing in the, in the same direction. If you look like, you know, we're all drops of, a, of waves hitting the sands across the beach, right? And we're all humanity pushing this way. I, I think, you know, a lot of things that you've done for years are things I've always been very interested in and truly believed into innately. I think that at the core of that, can we use technology to help people be better for themselves and other people is one of those like it's a very um it's a very desirable thing that we all want to see happen and we're hoping it will happen and one of my beliefs about this is 
once you know good, you do good. Now, if you don't, and that's not, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm aware that pollution is a thing. It's another thing to sit there and stare at pollution and watch it like take away the birds and do those things. But it's like, right. you, you, can, you can logically know something. That is not the same thing as knowing it's so deep down in your spirit or your soul or your body that, that it, is, it is the deepest true to you. And I, and I think the, he's right about the digital era, but I think that the digital era is going to give birth to a transformational era. And the transformational area will be people that are beyond the area. But monetization will always be a thing. If people can, if people can live, right, then they're just going to move up Maslow's hierarchy. But I think once you get to the top and you start staring things down the face, especially when you feel like you can have some sort of impact. You know, the reason why we have issues with being disengaged in games is when we feel like we, there's, we have no power in the game. So voting, for example, or other situations where people feel powerless to change. But if you can see something and you can effectively make a step in the right direction, then I, and they know that you can see progress, much like you got prop, you know, first feeling powerless from seeing the Vietnam vets, then being in a situation where you can actually measure it with and make progress, you then took the props of set. So I think is people, once they start to know that there is a better path, and once they know how to walk that path, people will just naturally choose that path um, if they want to, you know, ultimately be of service for themselves and other people. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, who has been along this journey for you? You've had to have some mentors along this path, people that have inspired you. You talked about Jaron Lanier. Um, um, who else has been instrumental to uh, kind of um, pointing you in this direction? This is a cast of thousands. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, I, I have a lot of gratitude for the people along the way, whether they intentionally tried to help me out or just by their presence, uh, it just naturally occurred, you know, and, and uh, you know, a lot of times I'll get students that will email me, you know, that, oh, I'm working on a project, can I have some of your time to run it by you? And I don't know these kids or anything. But I always try to make time for them because I think back when I was in grad school, and you know, there were times I was on a not the right path. I don't think for uh, you know growing and succeeding, and somebody stepped in and helped me out, or gently guided me in the right way, or listened to me when I had a gripe and gave me advice. And all the way through my career, I've just been blessed with um, with you know crossing paths with people like you know they. You know, I'll call him up by name, Ulrich Newman. He was the the uh, computer scientist that said, "Okay, yeah, uh, this sounds like a reasonable idea. Here's a student programmer that I have that'll work with you, and here's some equipment." And that got me started. If it wasn't for him, you know, who knows what I'd be doing now? And you know, along the way, there are a number of people. I, I mean, I could start naming names, but I feel bad that I uh, leave out, uh, you know, uh, so many. Um, but you know, I'm, you get a, you get a deep roll deck. So we'll just let me let me talk, let me ask you a, a kind of a side question to this. Like, what do you think that's all about? Like, you you've gone on this journey. You've had an incredible story from where you're at all the way to where you are now, and you feel like people just kind of, you know, the uh, Ulrich who helped just said, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll open up, I'll help you open up a VR station, and I'll help you get these things started. There's all these people on the path. Like, do you think, like, just as we'll just get a little meta here for just a hot second. Like, do you think we're like inside a game? Do you think things are lining up? Do you think we're just by, are we writing the story in our heads? Are we connected to some greater big whole thing? What do you, just just metaphysically, what do you, what, what's going on? What do you think? Well, you didn't tell me we we're gonna dig into philosophy here. <laughs> I just, well, here's, I wanted to talk about people but I felt you feel bad naming a thousand different people. So let's just looking at that path, let's just take a, let's take a metaphysical turn for a moment. Oh man, you know, the idea that this is all a virtual reality and it's just mm -hmm. physical energy that's around us and our senses transduce it into a percept in our brain. And uh, well, if that's the case, then, you know, that means there's some external force that's creating uh, the boundary conditions for experience in, in the world. And somebody wanted to see maybe if, uh, if art will put we'll put this character that I'll create called Ulrich and we'll see uh, if Skip follows up with him when he makes this offer, if that's, that'll be the true test as to whether this is his path 
to pursue. And if he does, then we'll put this programmer in front of him and he'll be a pain in the butt to work with, but he'll be really good. And then <laughs> the next one will be the meeting with the, you know, you know attention deficit disorder society where they wanted to do a project. And, you know, and so maybe, maybe, maybe reality is just uh, um, opportunities that pop up everywhere. And it's just a test as to whether you can recognize them or if you have the will or the passion to follow up on them. I mean, I don't, I don't know how all this stuff works. So. <laughs> you, know. yeah. you, haven't, you haven't hacked the matrix yet? No, man. <laughs> it's, just, it's just interesting because your story is so fascinating, but everyone's got their stories. But when you look back, you could actually make a story out of it. Like it sounds like it was, it was a, a story written for you on your journey of all the things that you have. And I just, I'm just curious if, if, if just us naturally just trying to piece these things together or if it really is a, you know, some sort of universe is like, here's your buffet of life choices. You can, you can, you can be a rogue and go along this path, or you can be a scientist and do this path. And so it's. Well, do you find in your work, now that you're involved in all this VR stuff, mm. that the people that are attracted to it are, they're, they tend to be a different kind of person. They tend to be more about, um, you know, uh, uh, creating something and bringing along people in that journey to create, or uh, you know, we're we're, di we're kind of a different ilk. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm the oddball, you know, at, at USC. Uh, fortunately, I've had a modicum of success, so I can get away with being an oddball. But you know, you look at at you know professors and academic scientists and all that that are pursuing other things and doing great work certainly but it's not the same culture as when you're looking to simulate reality or you're looking to create realities or you're looking to you know do positive things in those activities do you find that um in your work with your colleagues and yeah there's a certain amount of like it's a there's this different players all brought to the same game for for various but similar reasons and I've, what i've seen is that there is a general um love of technology then there is a there is a love to basically create and share experiences like an artist right um but then there's also this kind of this somewhat anti-social unless you're really into the things i'm really into and then let's go really deep and, and have a good time kind of cut thing but they also have this kind of like uh, dreaminess to them. Of they're like, okay, I'm gonna make this big. I'm gonna make this thing, and here's what, and here's what this thing is. And then you get the the joy from showing the thing to these people. Um, mm -hmm. And just like one of the reasons why I love doing like hackathons and running and organizing and putting together, it's kind of mm -hmm. like this little like this little like um, culture that you create. And, it's a, and the culture creates groupings of people, these antisocial people who resonate with each other. And it's very tribal because this small tribe against this other tribe, and they're all tribing together, <laughs> going at it to try to produce a thing that they then share with each other to show each other why this thing is awesome. Very much like, I don't know if like other tribes have this like pitch perfect where they have sing-along battles or they do it out. Or there's other, there's a thing where groupings of people come under a shared passion and they tribe up and then they, they war together in a friendly way, baseball, and they have this type of shared experience. And just one of the reasons why I got into the space was like, I love tinkering these little things, but I can't do it alone. Get together with all these other people, collaborate, produce a thing, and then, but it's all done under camaraderie. You know, you're kind of against other people, but you, but you all want to kind of push in the same direction together. Um, so I think that's the kind of people that I've seen and, and really resonate the most with. Uh, these, everyone's kind of like, you know, some artistic style that brought into the world or, uh, you know, people, you know, write stories, they come in or people that program in this space or they want to design things and just, but it's all around. They, they all have a, a piece of the vision. They're all, they all want to come mm -hmm. together and throw their Lego piece into the mix to make this thing because really you can come with anything and be a part of the VR world. Do you want to, do you want to come with a story? Do you want to come with the design? Do you want to come with art? Do you want to come with mechanics? And, and so it, it allows you to bring your piece and contribute like a baseball player in right field can come and work together. And so um, I think that's kind of like the tie in. Yeah, uh, I, I agree a hundred percent that, that it's a necessarily 
interdisciplinary process where there's a position on the field for every body type mentality and perception of the world and skill set yeah that um that when you work in a field for a while you have to be you have to be comfortable with working with people that don't talk exactly your language or have your expertise, but you got to be grateful that they're on the team because <laughs> you couldn't do that. Um, and, you know, it, I, I find that fascinating uh, the way, and, and you know, when you have a good team and when you have a team that's going to be at each other's throats uh, at yeah. the end, you know, you can pick that up uh, pretty early. You know, uh, this is going to be a painful one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they have, they have different dynamics. And the only way you get a lot of appreciation for a really good team is going through a whole bunch of other ones and like knowing what you resonate with. And, you know, cause some people want to play hard. Some people want to keep everything, you know, and so it's fine out, you know, what, you know, what band of brothers works with you, um, which I think is, is so important. Um, I do know that we're, we're getting close to the, the top of the hour here. Um, we're getting towards the end of this thing. Um, what I'd like to ask is if, uh, one, do you have any, uh, it'll be a, uh, just the closing here is, do you have any messages, any thoughts, if there are any young adventurers that are starting out, that are just starting to get into this field, that, are, that, that, that have the same kind of heart and will, if any advice you give to them? Um, and then the second piece, which would wrap it up, is if people want to get a hold of you or reach out or form more about what you do, how do they how do, they do that? Yeah. Okay, well, you know, I, I think for people that are, are thinking about whether the, the VR is a career or it's a, a hobby or just a, a thing they're, they're curious about, the key thing that um, I tell folks typically is number one, first and foremost, you got to do what you love. The only way you're going to be any good at anything is to have passion for it. And if VR is your passion, then you got to go for it. It's not an easy ride. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, we all make it look cool when they see one of our, our demos or a cool app or something we worked on, you know, it, it makes it look easy, but it's a hellish, um, ride ahead, not only to build things that are novel and interesting and make a difference for people, but how do you make money doing that? Uh, I've seen, you know, VR is like the siren song, you know, pulling the sailors to the rocks, you know, when you see all the VR companies that are wreckages on those rocks because they may, <laughs> they may have had a great idea and they've been, been motivated by the best purposes, but they were missing that business element or they didn't realize that, you know, you're not going to make a company on one product or you didn't have enough investment to build that product out to a level where it could be usable and disseminable and all that. So there are a lot of those, those challenges, but if you love it, you got to go for it, you know, um, you know, and, and, you know, I, sometimes I think back, if I knew in 1995, how long it would take for VR to really get good enough to manifest some of the vision of what we hope to do back then, I might have chickened out. So maybe some blissful ignorance is good too. Like, you know, even if people are saying, well, it's not going to be ready for prime time. No, if you love it, if you have a passion for it, then you just, you don't have a choice. You go for it or else, you know, or else you're just going to punch a clock, you know? Uh, um, and there's a lot of good jobs where you punch clocks. I don't want to get down on people for taking that path, but you know, if you're going to go into VR, don't be afraid and go for it, but do, but partner up with people that, that know, um, you know, that know the business side as well. If you, if you decide to go into business with it, um, you know, I think, uh, a lot of, you know, I'm an older guy, you're a young kid, you still got another you know, 40 years ahead of you, I got another maybe 15, 20, maybe. Um, but I think right now is a good time because you do got a lot of old farts like me that have made a lot of mistakes, have hopefully learned from, hopefully we'll make newer, bigger, more creative mistakes as we move forward. But partnering with the, I, I, I find it fascinating working with younger folks that have this energy, this vigor, this knowledge base that I never even could have considered having at that age. Uh, kids, people are so much more advanced in their 20s and 30s now than they were when I was coming up. Uh, but that blend of that energy, that vigor, that knowledge base, 
and maybe partner with an old part like me with a little bit of wisdom. Uh, so I don't mind if people contact or reach out to me, uh, you know, get a hold of me through my email, which is pretty easy to, to get a hold of, or you can post it, I don't care. Um, I'm always open to, to looking at new ideas and considering, you know, how we make a difference with this stuff. And so somebody's got the energy and the vigor. I try to make time, uh, at least enough time to listen and share my thoughts on their idea. And maybe if there's opportunity to be able to point them in the right direction or maybe even work with them, uh, depending on what it is. But, um, you know, the, you know, this is a, a remarkable time. And, it, and this is one of those pivotal times. This is a transformative period, uh, you know, all the social upheaval aside, you know, we're able to do things now that, you know, this is, this is what got me through a lot of the dark times in VR. I could look at an app and say, we're able to do something now that no one in the history of humankind has ever done before. And it might've been some simple dumbass virtual classroom, but no one had done one of those before. And, you know, to test kids with attention deficit or whatever. But it, there's, there's something about this time where we can leverage this technology that in 10, 15 years, yeah, there might be some new technology, maybe we brain uh, bio interface type things, whatever. But at this time, there is, so much opportunity to do novel things that, that potentially be transformative in healthcare, education, training, um, you know, the whole spectrum of use cases for VR that um, if you, you got the bug, you know, go for it. Don't, uh, don't chicken out. No, I love it, man. That is so true. You, I often say that sometimes you feel like the tunnel, like in order to make it through the tunnel, you got to believe the tunnel is like, you know, a foot wide when it might be a mile deep. And so you're going to run the tunnel, like, I'm going to go. And they're like, oh no, I started running. And you got to keep, you got to, you got to keep that steam all the way through. Cause so many people do, they, 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 they chicken out, they get scared, they run away, they, whatever it is, but they do, they can't sustain. They can't find the economical resourcefulness. They can't, they, you know, they, they can't team up well. They don't play nice with others. There's, there's a bunch of reasons that would that would limit people or, from going through it. Or, or they choke after their first uh, failure or first yeah, mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, the the whole the whole thing crashes. Everybody, everyone's all mad at you. You know, there's a there's a there's a lot of great reasons to stop on the journey. But <laughs> but if you really like, if if you love to see that look, do you mean like that look on people's faces when you put someone through an experience that gives an emotional impact to them? It's one of the best feelings ever. Yep. Uh, you see them and, and just that gift that you gave them and then to see their response is just so so wonderful so um i think it's all all beautiful things man and uh, i do hope that anybody that is listening does stand this um this path because you really will be a, a world builder and you can really have you can have an impact in someone's life you know um and uh with the as uh who was it? spider spider-man's uncle ben said was great power comes great responsibility you can, you can really do a lot with this medium. So, uh, Skip, thank you so much for your time, brother. I really appreciate this. Um, you know, I appreciate who you are and what you do. And uh, I look forward to working with you on future projects and also um, um, seeing what else magic you used to have um, to unroll for us. Well, thanks for having me. I, I enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I hope, hope this is a, a good show for you. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, brother. No, I, had a, I had a great time, and this was, this, was, this was super dope. So, you know, thank you again. I really appreciate your time. All right, bro. Talk soon. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or, if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.